Uh, <coughs> Cat air in my eye. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. You are listening to Service Course by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Welcome to Service Course. I'm Tom Wally. I'm with Lizzie Banks, and Lizzie Banks has got cat hair in her eye. Hello, Tom. Yeah, drama here as ever. <laughs> Another medical problem for Lizzie Banks. <laughs> First concussion, then pericarditis due to COVID, and then cat hair in the eye, which is, you know, probably the worst affliction of those three. But hello, welcome <laughs> back. Good to good to be back with you all. Well, we're going straight in. Lizzie, you, um, the pericarditis thing, actually, that's um, it's worth mentioning because there's kind of been a bit of a spate of it in the pro peloton, I've noticed. Um, have you spoken much about it? Because obviously you've been suffering for, what, about a month or so, a couple of months? Yeah, so it's not something we've actually discussed on the cycling podcast yet. But um, the, the issue of sickness in the peloton is one that has obviously you know, hugely affected so many races this year or well, the last few years, but in particular this spring, you know, Paris-Nice had the lowest number of finishes ever. We're obviously still seeing people drop out of, of the Giro with COVID cases, um, stomach stomach bugs, which is actually seems to be norovirus, you know, and also just really bad viral, non-COVID related viral illnesses. Um, but yeah, so I, I actually um, unfortunately came down with COVID 20 hours before my first race back in February and um, thought thought that I'd recovered from it, came back to racing at Ghent Wobblegem and then uh, raced at Tvarsel Vlandren. Um, came home after um, the tragic news of Richard passing away and um, I was also having some trouble breathing. But because of, you know, the, the shock of Richard's passing, I, I wasn't sure kind of what those symptoms were related to when I was getting some chest pain, which I initially put down to, to the anxiety of, of the loss. Um, but it, it continued to get worse and worse that, that week over the course of the next week uh, to the point where I took myself to A&E about five days later because I had constant chest pain and um, significant problems breathing um, on the bike. And uh, it was it was kind of inconclusive, but then went for some further, further tests that diagnosed it as pericarditis. So it's been um, nearly nearly two months, about seven weeks actually, since since I was diagnosed. Um, started on on medication, so anti-inflammatories to to control the inflammation. And um, a few weeks ago, I went for an MRI scan of my heart, hoping that there would be no inflammation. So pericarditis is inflammation of the pericardium, which is the sac that surrounds the heart. Um, and I have inflammation of that pericardium, but also fluid between the heart and, and the sac. Um, and until that fluid is gone, which can only be managed by rest and anti-inflammatories, um, there's not much I can do, really. I just have to sit it out, um, can't ride, can't really walk, can't really do anything. But there was also the MRI also showed that there were bilateral, so both sides, um, there was very tiny pleural effusions, which means that there was small amounts of fluid on the lungs as well. So that had obviously been, um, you know, a probable probable effect of um, kind of post-COVID inflammation as well. So <laughs> it's all wow. of a mess, but, but it is something that we've seen at the highest level and is incredibly common in the general population and even more so in the athlete population. Tim de Klerk had pericarditis, um, you know, most high profile, I would say, um, 
Chloe Hosking of Tractic Afredo last year also had pericarditis and was off the bike for quite a while. Sarah Giganti of Movistar had had pericarditis and myocarditis. And so it was um, great to see her back, back to her winning ways in Spain last month, uh, this month. But yeah, it's um, unfortunately a, a common complication of COVID. Well, um, possibly easier to cope with than concussion, though, Lizzie. I mean, we're going to return to concussion for, for this episode, aren't we? Um, which has obviously been a big subject. But um, I guess pericarditis is easier to cope with than concussion in that you can sort of, your brain is working fine and you can understand it. And you can, you know, although it's difficult to cope with, you know, at least you can make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've obviously talked a lot about concussion on this podcast following um, the journey that I had last year, but we're returning to that today. We're looking at two technologies that are desperately needed within cycling. And we also speak to Tom Fallon, who runs an educational program around concussion with the Cycling Ireland Juniors. Um, So please stick around to the end because all of those interviews are brilliant absolutely brilliant and so insightful and I think within this podcast we show exactly precisely the trio of things that we need to incite change culture change and and you know protect riders health within this sport so I mean you know talking about talking about kind of new tech in the news recently we just wanted to say a a big congrats to Ellen Van Dyke on her recent hour record of 49.254 kilometers but Ellen Van Dyke is another rider who suffered a concussion last year at Paris-Roubaix and it was quite a bad concussion well I mean I think this is again it's a a problem isn't it we say concussion whether it's bad or not and we sometimes you know we sometimes decide to the rider whether it's bad or not no is there a good concussion there is not a good concussion um and I actually got in touch with Ellen a month or so after her concussion and said, um, you know, I, I, she was back racing at, at Vastor Vlandrin three weeks afterwards. And I, I was really concerned because she said she was still having symptoms. And I said, have a listen to this. And um, she said to me that, you know, she realized as a result of that, that she she did need some kind of further further treatment. And, you know, she's made a spectacular recovery. She had a brilliant spring. And obviously she's now the the hour record, the new hour record holder. So it's just, you know, it's another example of how even at the top level, we don't have that education there for the riders. Well, and it's, you know, it's always a concern when uh, you see a rider suffer a head injury, you know, and when you, when you know that they've suffered a head injury um, as a viewer and, and they continue, it's, 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 all, it's always a, a big worry. You do sort of question, you know, what are the teams doing? And we saw it with them. Um, Nat Nail uh, Tasfazion uh, at the Giro. I think it was it stage uh, stage we, nine to block stage nine, yeah. He was he was actually leading the race in the front two riders that was leading the race, and he just missed missed the corner. And and fortunately enough, there was almost kind of an exit lane that he yeah. managed to take, and it was he he managed to get off just before the, the guardrail. And otherwise, it would have it could have been much much worse if he'd have hit that and flipped. Um, but yeah, he he was. We we saw him have this horrible accident. Um, we saw him thankfully stand up, and so you know he was yeah. conscious, which was good. Um, but oh, it yeah. was clear that he wasn't quite right. And then I, I followed the story, and later I learned that he had got back on his bike and finished the stage. Um, whether or not a concussion protocol was enacted, I don't know. But just following up on that, now I realised that he DNF'd um, on stage sixteen to Africa. And I'm trying to look into kind of the reason why, um, you know, 
what happened if it was something completely unrelated or if there was perhaps, you know, ill effects from that crash. Um, and I couldn't find any information. So I would be really interested to know. So please don't get in contact with us if you if you have any more info on um, Tesfatsi on the, the drone. Um, but yeah, I mean, that leads us into kind of, well, how do we how do we recognize these impacts yeah. in the first place in order to then enact a proper protocol or use a device like Neuroflex, which we're going to talk about later in the show, which um, is, is a device that's being trialed in World Rugby at the moment that is a VR headset that you can put on and in within, within a couple of minutes will tell you um, completely independently whether or not you have a deficit in your visual tracking, which is thought to be one of the first things to be affected when you have a hit to the head. Speaking of hits to the head, I spoke with Ewan and Fern from HIT, who make a small device that you can attach to a helmet or headwear that recognises G-forces and can tell you when you have had a hit and help you identify when you might want to be taken out of sport. Hi, I'm Ewan and this is Fern and we're from HIT Recognition uh, speaking with Lizzie. Yeah, so HIT Recognition is equivalently what we've done is it's a device that's monitoring and giving the user rider and um, whatever sport discipline you're in live impact detection so we're we're looking at concussion um, and we're looking at brain injury that's like the basis of what why we started hit and we've split it into three there's the indication the diagnostics and the recovery so what we are purely focused on is providing a tool that goes alongside observation method, methods to indicate when you as a rider, you as a user, um, might need to take a minute, remove yourself from the sport to do a diagnostics test. Now, HIT started three years ago, and I won't be around the bush, we started as a rugby product. We were focused on rugby. Um, it started when one of my teammates had to retire from, from rugby at 24. Um, he was in his final year of university. Um, and he had three concussions in one season. Now, the first concussion was, was obvious. He lost consciousness. Um, you know, I think people, even when you don't fully understand concussion, understand if you're, if you're unresponsive from a head knock, it's, it's concussion. Now, the other two, though, were a bit more... Well, you, you, he was, we were finding it hard to explain. He didn't lose consciousness. Symptoms appeared um, after training and potentially even like this third one Late, you know, two days later, and we set around. There must be something we can do to indicate in that moment and try and catch it earlier, so that we're not sending players away to have symptoms later on. So they can get care straight away. We can remove them. So what we're looking at is obviously the one-off impacts, the severity of threshold, and we're traffic lighting it. So red obviously is a threshold. Please remove the player or remove yourself. Again, the user can choose to ignore it should they want. It's just a tool um, to give you instant knowledge. Um, amber is anything that is higher than the normal amount within sport. So um, we're, we're working around about 60 Gs um, for adult males or just adults at the moment because again, all the data we're collecting in the background allows us to be a bit more bespoke. Um, and in green's everything we've seen in testing from um, general sports movement. And zero to five Gs as well is the noise. We just, we cut zero to five Gs out because running, cornering, um, it's just zero to five Gs is kind of like general movement. Um, so that's kind of what we are in a, in a, in a nutshell. 
we're developing it. We've got some um, Hit Plus just around the corner, which is looking at GPS and performance in parallel. Um, so again, it's trying to add, it, it's adding another element to the device that you can sit on the back of your helmet or you can put it in a pocket um, for our rugby head guard or halo headband for football. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's an educational tool, isn't it? And it's fascinating to hear you say, um, you know, initially, kind of before you got into this, that, well, the first concussion was obvious because he got knocked out. And then the second one was confusing because he wasn't knocked out. And it's this constant misnomer in concussion education that uh, you do not have to be knocked out in order to have a concussion. Or people might say, oh, it was only mild because I wasn't even unconscious. Well, you know, it's not true at all. So, so the pro- what what is the product? It's a little it's a little button, isn't it? And where do you how, how do you actually use that? It, you you put it on the back of your helmet if you're cycling. Yeah, exactly. So it's about the size of a two pence piece. Um, not that there's that many of them circling around anymore, um, but it's about the size of a two pence piece. It weighs about twenty grams, um, and it's stuck on the back of your helmet for for cycling um, or any hard shelled sport, um, similar to a GoPro. So you know you've got the the sticky tape, you clean the surface, you stick it on, hold it for five, 10 seconds. Once it's stuck on, good luck trying to get it off. But um, I suppose that's, that's the good thing. You don't want this falling off and then having a crash and be like, oh, where's it gone? Um, and what the device itself does, it does look like a little button. It connects to your phone. So we have a, a accompanying app um, that basically translates the data for you. Now we're looking at, you know, we're not trying to overcomplicate it. We're not trying to provide you all of the metrics. Here, look, you've had your x-axis is high, your y-axis is low, your rotation is, is massive. Because then, I mean, I, I use it like, think of it like my mum. Okay, my mum phones me up to ask, how do I use BBC iPlayer? I'm trying to watch EastEnders from the other night. And it's trying to make a product that's accessible for all levels, from grassroots to pro, pro games. So what we do is we translate, we've got an algorithm that gives you one G-force one G-force figure that you can action off. So we're not trying to overcomplicate it. It's a really easy to action bit of information, really easy to absorb. Um, so yeah, it sticks on the back of your, your helmet. We, we, we recommend placing it, um, best way to describe it is you've got the little bump on the back of your head at the top of your spine. Um, that's where we'd like it almost at the back of your head um, to get the most accurate reading. So I see this in cycling as a tool that you would use as an immediate response to um, a crash or an injury yeah, in the immediate aftermath of that. And so often in cycling, it's so difficult with concussion because there's a concussion protocol, but the race moves on. And unless you, unless you act immediately and either take that rider out of the race um, or you potentially, with a concussed rider, you tell them to get back on their bike and go to the finish, you could either be taking a rider that's fine out of a race or you could be putting a concussed rider into a very, very dangerous situation. The Giro d'Italia is on now um, and there was an Eritrean rider, Tesfatsion, who just had a horrible crash um, and it was quite clear that he was um, dizzy and you know not quite right. And he got back on his bike and he finished the stage. And I, I hope that he will be OK. But this would have been perfect in that scenario because the team doctor, the, the team doctor, the race doctor could have just scanned this and, and had a look um, at the impact score and, and then made a more informed decision based on that as well as um, as clinical intuition and symptoms that he was seeing from the patient by the side of the road. But 
what is the evidence behind the traffic light score? Um, do you have data that it's based on? And, and are you able to kind of say that, uh, you know, a G-force below a certain level is safe and above a certain level almost certainly indicates con- concussion? Yeah, so, so we, we get this question quite a lot, which is to do with the threshold. And it's trying to find out what is a figure. And we've taken this from, from doing our, our in, in-person testing. But then what we see in in-person testing is you know, you're only really ever going to go up to about 30 Gs, maybe into the amber zone. So we're not going to, we're not trying to injure play, players. It's only so many times you can ask someone to, oh, can you just fall off your bike and see? But what we've done is we based it off of um, medical papers and journals over the last decade. And it's, the, it's trying to take, again, you know, like what we're also learning is making this threshold more bespoke. We've taken the number that appears the most, the number that, is most accepted within um, circles. With, we work with Professor Angus Hunter and Dr Howard Hurst as well, um, who are doing research with us to, to know more about that threshold impact. Now, there was a report in 1998, it was an automotive report, which was looking at car crashes and victims and a traumatic brain injury. And in the report, I mean, it's, it's you know, potentially it's outdated, it was 1998, but there's, again... That because the data's not really there yet, we've got little snippets and we're taking the most appearing, is that 78 Gs had a 50-50 chance of having catastrophic brain injury. That's a 50-50 chance of catastrophic injury. We're just trying, we want to know when to remove someone when there's a small risk. You know, again, we're not trying to get to that stage. So we're working off of 60 Gs, which is from adult male. And I think what one of the most frustrating things up until now is that most tests are done on adult males. You know, in terms of there's not a huge amount of data on, on female females. And there's, then also we use a sliding scale for, for age. You know, so you want to look at... Because one of the other things that keeps coming up with um, our research and conversations is that when you're pro-athlete, everything's focused on the professional athlete and the risk that comes from after... The, you know, the degenerative brain disease that are unfortunately happening and, and very um, well, well documented in the media about rugby and football at the moment, you know, got a lot of um, retired players coming out, is that before you're even a professional sports person, you've got 10 or 15 years of a career while you, as a youngster. You know, you're learning to ride, you're having all this impact. So what we're trying to do and what we are doing is there's a threshold and we're sliding, scaling it down. Yeah, users can adjust it. To their own at the moment but we've got we're learning every time somebody is picking up and recording so that we're starting to see trends and see and be a lot more bespoke to see what thresholds are more accurate so that people can refer back to the research that we're doing in the background of providing the service to be like right this impact for a 15 year old girl rider is actually not going to be 60 Gs, it's going to be about 43 Gs. You know, we can be a lot more bespoke um, and that's where your risk involves. So we'd be like, at 43 Gs, we're going to give you a red traffic light designation and here's your risk based on the, re- the data we've collected, the potential of a 23% chance of concussion. And this is all learning as we go because, as I was referring right back to the start, was there's only so many times you can ask someone to simulate falling off their bike it's the lifestyle data that we that is really key to collect this so that's where we feel obviously hit is really unique and you know going back to what you're saying about the riders i think fern was um 
you know, she's sent me quite a few videos of the crashes that are happening in, in cycling and, it, and it's scary. Yeah, so there was the, the sort of famous one that had over like 200,000 YouTube hits uh, um, of Latvian road racer Thomas. Thomas yeah, that's the surname. <laughs> um, and that was obviously in 2017, but that video is just, it's, it's crazy to see someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can visibly see anyone watching that can identify he's not right. And he gets back on um, and he's way off into the sort of the edge of the road, and other riders are sort of turning around looking at him. And um, it's you know it's really daunting and baffling to see that that is really what's going on, um, and I think it goes back to what you'd said in your podcast from earlier on in the summer in terms of in road cycling there's no timeouts there's no substitutes there's no sideline uh, assessment there that's readily available, um, and that's why probably our hit tech fits well within cycling as a sport because it's readily available it's that lifetime data it's accessible you're not having to make that decision of whether a rider is removed from a race and all the other elements that come with that um as well as trying to protect them too so um yeah it definitely sits within cycling and um that sport specifically Definitely. I mean, there's there's so many questions to, that I've got to ask you off the back of that. And it's funny, you know, I think that it's almost an innately human response that either when you have a cold or when you have a concussion, you vehemently deny it. Um, <laughs> and and I think that HIT is, is a tool that can help us to think about the fact that concussion could be you know is something that we need to be thinking about and if you have any crash if it's there and you've got it then you think oh yeah that's there should I have a look and what I've learned from sharing my story is that concussion is wildly prevalent within professional cycling but there are so many people normal everyday cyclists who have concussions and because they're not professional athletes it goes even more unnoticed and it's even more dismissed by the doctors. Um, and you know, many doctors, many neurologists even don't really understand concussion. Um, I'm just dealing with um, a friend of mine at the moment who's got a concussion and she's in a world tour team and her team are denying it. And it's just shocking. Um, and I said, give me your DS's phone number and let me call him up. And this rider is being forced to kind of go to the race is not racing but be in this team environment and this rider needs to just be taken out of it and it's absolutely wild it's shocking um but yeah where i see this going where i see this technology going is really something that could be integrated into helmets so so Poco, my helmet sponsor and at the moment they've just um introduced this nfc chip which is a medical id chip in the back of the helmet and it's something that they're kind of rolling out and they're they're the people that are starting with the technology. If you want something to happen, then you've got to start somewhere. So they're starting by putting that technology into the helmet. And then they will, once they've got that, they will then educate um, the health services. And I see this tool, uh, this hit recognition tool, as something like that that you can put inside a helmet. Because I think especially with cycling, it's one of those things where... Um, the more sleek something is, the more likely something, you know, people are to use it. And also if you've got it integrated into helmets, then um, you will just start using it because it will just be there. Is that something you've thought about? Um, and how do you go about doing that? Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely something we thought about. So we're working with, um, with Reese Wilson, who's obviously 
crossing over into mountain uh, downhill mountain biking. That's where there's an educational, touching back on your sort of educational point, is that mountain bikers definitely seem to be more, not even more educated, they're more accepting that they will crash. Whereas road cyclists, as far as we've seen, even especially down at, um, you know, just below the pro level, sort of the, the keen amateur enthusiasts, so they're very much like, well, why do I need this? I understand it, but I don't plan on crashing. And it's kind of like, well, nobody plans on crashing and it's trying to make them aware that concussion is incredibly severe, it's incredibly unknown. I think, you know, we are scratching the surface of what we know about concussion, but even when you refer back to the videos that we were just chatting about, is you see the rider, you see the race um, assistants trying to just help the rider get back on their bike because they get up, their legs and arms are all still moving, they're like, it's okay. Like, I, I feel, you know, everything's still attached. Nothing feels incredibly sore. And I far enough smile at this, but... Because it was a, it feels it was a light bulb moment. We were having a conversation last month with somebody. And it was this realisation that your brain is telling you if your legs and your arms or anything's hurt. But your brain's trying to self-diagnose. But then, you, because of the nature of a, a brain injury or um, on concussion, is it... You're, again, it's like... <laughs> just a lack of a better word is it's clouded you're going to be clouded because your brain's not fully functioning at its its top end level it's trying to be aware of that um, but in terms of what you're saying about integration into a helmet that yeah we are having these sort of conversations and um, you know the the device that's out on the market at the moment is it does what it says in the tin it's giving you your impact detection it's giving you your traffic light system and then we're learning from that in the background while users are getting the benefit but the next step forward is, you know, we've, we've looked at models like MIPS. We've looked at the, the, the chip that you're saying, the scan that you were saying, and it's about putting it into the helmet so that it becomes part and parcel. Like you don't, it's... You don't even need to think about it. It's just there. It, you don't think, oh, should I, should I buy this extra tool to see whether I've got a concussion? Yeah. And, and you, the thing is, when you go out, head out for a bike ride, you never think, I'm going to crash. It's only, it's only once you crash that you you know you come across those hindsight it's really about it's really about you know being there before what you really need is to stick it on the back of every single cyclist in the country or you know a peloton at the tour de france or the giro d'italia and in no time you'd have plenty of data (laughs) yeah and i think it's um for us we're trying to look at it very impartially we're not we're not coming at it with any bias you know i was mentioned at the start it started as a rugby product like i like the game of rugby I, i play it I don't want to change it, and it's the same with cycling. Um, but what we want to do is there needs to be an element of care, a duty of care here to, um, again, catch it early because you know riders that are getting back on with even a potential risk of concussion, that risk of even more severe damage if they were to have a, a follow-up or even if you look at the performance, like their performance can be impaired by um, a sm- even a small concussion. So... Again, it's about getting that information early, and if it, and if we and if and when we integrate it, we of course we could go away and develop our own helmet. But it goes back to the thing is in cycling, especially everyone wears a helmet. I mean, most people, <laughs> you know, maybe older generations maybe grew up not wearing a helmet, and it's trying to get them to wear one. But everyone wears a helmet because they are aware of the risk that you know concussion or head impacts and head injury occurs in the sport. So why would you not want to know the impact you're sustaining if that was to happen 
which gives you a better insight into what's happened. The thing is, we, um, with Dr. Howard Hurst, we, he did a, an initial research with some mountain bike riders and he was saying that out of the survey he did, 50% of the trialists that were wearing helmets thought that it prevented a concussion, which is really scary. And that's a small sample size and I would like to, it'd be interesting to see what that is on a larger scale in terms of wearing a helmet. But if everyone wears a helmet, then, and we can integrate this into a helmet, in the, in the future, then again, we can only learn more and we can all only protect users further. So mm-hmm. again, I think that is definitely... And I think risk. just to jump onto the back of what Ewan's saying there, um, that same research that uh, Dr Howard Hurst had done, he'd also highlighted the generational gap there. Um, and I know that's something that you previously mentioned, um, Lizzie, uh, just around, you know, some sort of the older generation there just don't see it as an issue or, you know, just get on with it or it's a part of the sport or they just kind of, you know, oh, that, that is what it is kind of thing. Um, but where we're really seeing it is the, the grassroots and the youth sport and they're taking a really big kind of, all oh, right, OK, we recognise this as an issue. Um, and that's where it is for us at HIT is to embed that early education within riders and athletes so that they're aware of what concussion is, so that parents, coaches, everyone involved in sport can actually recognise it. And I know that um, there's lots of advocates out there like progressive rugby um, and various other sort of people on Twitter forums as well are talking about how we all have that responsibility and duty of care, whether you be a parent at the sideline or a coach, you should have that understanding of what concussion is and how to spot it and how we all play that role in, in sort of protecting athletes, and protecting people involved in sport. And I think that's probably one of our big messages here at HIT is uh, we're not trying to hinder or stop people from playing sport. You know, the positive benefits of playing sport far outweigh the negatives. Um, so yeah, hit hit, and the technology is totally to be utilised and to benefit everyone in sport. I completely agree with you. And and the thing is that the people often don't realise is that taking people out of sport uh, means that they will return to sport a lot faster. If I had if I had um, probably been taken out of my race at thirty kilometres rather than doing another hundred kilometres and then flying home and doing two assignments and then going for another bike ride and being on my phone and all of these things maybe I wouldn't have had you know a whole season off the bike you just simply don't know but what we do know uh, is the first 48 hours is critical and then the first two weeks is very important and so if you screw up in that first 48 hours and you put a rider back on a bike and you make them travel and you do all of these things then you are hugely decreasing their chance of a swift recovery and increasing their chance of post-concussion syndrome and and I think it's it's just so important to almost have you know, notification like you would get from WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever. And and yes, it's not quite the notification coming to your phone, but, you know, if a team doctor can put their phone on the helmet and go, oh, ping, that's something that we need to be aware of. Then if you combine that with the fact that, oh, hold on, this rider looks a little bit spaced out and maybe is a little bit like a baby gazelle when they're walking around, then maybe they should be taken out of the race. Well, we've looked at that and we've chatted actually with um some of the governance behind mountain bike races, because they are, and it's probably the same with um, with road and duo and peloton races as well, where you're getting timing stages. So you're going past these timing markers and then they're taking your split times, etc. Um, now what we're, we're looking at potentially doing is taking each device that would maybe be worn or if it's integrated in the helmet at this stage, 
that you a rider goes past a marker, their their data is downloaded within because it'll be within the ten meter radius of this marker. It's downloaded. It's going to race control so that riders are then are continuing on. We're trying to you know un, unhindered. They they don't know what's happening, but somebody else is looking out for them above. It's kind of like the eye in the sky, so to speak. So you're getting the timing data down, but you're also seeing any impact or load. Um, because that's another thing that we're, we're also focused on is not these one-off impacts as well, because of course that's what we're focused on at the moment is really important, but it's the accumulation and it's that load of G over time. So whether it be rotation or any, any um, other form of, of impact, it's that accumulation. So where is that accumulation drop-off? Because um, we've Dr. Angus Hunter, uh, Professor Dr. Angus Hunter, um, who we obviously do some work with, he's focusing on heading and football as his predominant background. But it's looking at what is... A, I, I always look at it as a health bar, and you're knocking away at this health bar of G, you know, a game that might look like a video game to everyone else, but it's a health bar that's knocking away down to a point where you're approaching a load threshold that is proven to be that you're removing from a baseline per your profile as an as a adult male, adult female. And he's done a study already and we're developing that at the moment, um, which is looking in, in football round about 300 Gs uh, removes an adult male away from baseline. Very small and within that baseline, 24 hours of recovery, you know, again, just deload, recover, remove yourself, just relax, drink lots of water, you know, all of the standard guidelines that you would get with, with concussion, that you're back to normal, you're back to full health. And that's what we're also really interested in, where it's looking at these little sub-concussive impacts or just that load to your brain. It's like you go for a, a long ride, your muscles will be really fatigued and you recover those muscles. Your brain's like it, that, the exact same. You, you need to recover. You know, again, you, you go straight, as you were saying before, if you'd had a concussion, you're then riding another 100 kilometres. You're then jumping on a plane, you're going to see your team, you're on your phone, everything that is stimulating your brain. So it's like if you were to do a long ride and you fatigue your muscles, you're then going to go for a long walk as well, or you're going to um, go for a jog. You know, it's all these little things that are going to re-stimulate those already tired and fatigued muscles, where we're also looking at that as well as you know, these one-off one impacts, which is really important. And then, again, it was the same with not looking at the force, it was looking at you know, a more basic study. And Dr. Howard Hurst was saying that one day of mount, downhill mountain bike riding, a full day, was showing cognitive change from the beginning to when they were finishing. I'd, I mean, I'd find it a little bit scary because I'm like, well, if you transfer this through into other sports like, like rugby or football, what's, what's happening there? Because you are suffering, you are having more contact. It's a contact sport, whereas cycling, road cycling especially, isn't thought of as a contact sport, but you are you know, accumulating load, whether it be hard cornering or um, you might have a crash, you might have hard braking. Like these are all little things that are affecting and coming through. That's fascinating. So in downhill mountain biking, the actual force you're saying of, you know, kind of going down and absorbing those kind of drops constantly and how hard it's happening is actually causing G-forces that could cause you to have cognitive, you know, a very small amount, but a cognitive impairment just from yep. training down a hill. You know, again... It's not to scare anyone because, you know, your, your brain sits inside, you know, it's, it's like a little bean inside a capsule of water and it like rattles around and it's, it's designed to, to move, that's designed for a bit of movement and they, you know, we do sport and 
you know, these one-off little impacts aren't terrible. You know, it's not damaging to you, but it's about taking lots of that. It's like, um, you know, it's about then recovering. It's about recovering to then perform again, to go and do the sport. It's, you know, so any other, you know, sport, go to the gym, training routine, you're managing your week and your expectations so that if you say you're going to the gym, you do like a, a lower body workout. You then the next day you're going, you do an upper body workout because you want to leave your, your lower limbs to, to recover. And I think what we're trying to understand is then your brain's the same. Your brain needs to recover and deload to an extent. And impact is just one, one, one aspect of it. But what we're also saying is we need to kind of start somewhere. There's a lot of amazing stuff going on about the diagnostics. You know, there's some amazing tech that's going out there that looks at your eyes and tracking your eyes. And you've got, but everyone else, everyone in every sport uses a different method as well. Um, but what we're trying to say is first step, indicate to then catch more potential concussions to then push them through to do diagnostics. Absolutely. And we've actually got Neuroflex on this podcast as well. So it's, which I think is fascinating because I think that they're, two different technologies that work brilliantly in parallel, especially in cycling, because I'm not, I don't really think it's something that you could do by the side of the road. Or if, if you were to do it by the side of the road, you'd want something to indicate initially that you would want to take that rider out and stop them to then do a more comprehensive um, test. Like you might see with Neuroflex. So, so we need as many recognition tools as we can. You know, we don't just use how we feel when we when we train in cycling. We use power and we use heart rate and we use, you know, power to heart rate ratio and, and all of these different metrics. We use every tool that we can in order to gain insight into how we train and how we can be better. And it's the same with concussion. You know, we want to use all the metrics we can. And what we've got at the moment, the concussion protocol in cycling is rubbish, Um I think, or it's not very good. Um, and it's just about bringing in more metrics, more notification systems, um, more systems that can educate people um, and, and make people aware of what could possibly go wrong. I think it's not even just um, looking at it in competition, it's looking at it in training as well, because uh, we previously done a, a case study on a mountain biker, uh, Laurie Tennant, and you'll be able to read this sort of, uh, story, but and um, what he was saying was he suffered his concussion just just during training, just out, you know, riding his bike. And I think people just kind of drop off and forget, oh, well, actually, this is a serious injury that can just happen. You know, you can just be out in your street and you can fall off your bike and, and hit your head. So um, it's not just for those road cyclist professionals out there that are going 100 miles an hour or aiming to be the the world champion it's for the end user as well that goes out on his bike and um it goes for a 10 kilometer ride at the weekend and um concussion can affect anyone and everyone um, i don't yeah. think you touching on that i don't think you're aware until it happens to you or it happens to someone that you're close to and i think that's where we're trying to again we go back to the very you know the very first thing we were, you were talking about lizzie which is the educating it's like you don't know you need this until it's too like it's too late and you've had that unfortunate you've unfortunately right. suffered uh, a concussion and you know Laurie is an example of a very severe post concussive sim- uh, syndrome. If you we, we've actually interviewed him and um, you can read about it on our in our news and in our on our website. No, I'm not just 
you know tell you to go and look at that but go and look at it it's hitrecognition.co.uk <laughs> we've got a couple of interviews like that and you know we speak to dr angus hunter and there's some more about the research we're doing in the background which is um which is really insightful and but the thing with, with, with laurie is that you know it happened he, he was like on his own he lost con- uh, lost consciousness he just got up and he still continued riding which is the same thing when we look back at these these videos and of, of uh, racers and they just want to get back it's you know you're performing you're in a race you're in that heated environment even in training you're wanting to better yourself so you're, again you're dusting yourself off you're hopping back on and you want to continue but it's trying to create that little step that can just tell you here like if you feel okay that's okay but then look here's the impact information that we can provide you and you can make a decision or try and make a decision on um what's best in terms of you and your and your brain health so that's kind of where we're coming in and um yeah hoping to make it better i think what we've seen there in that fascinating chat with hit was how desperately needed education is in the sport and something that something like hit can just wake us up to the fact that there is a possible injury here so in the next interview i'm going to speak with tom fallon who will tell you all about the education he's providing but in this interview i briefly mention um, the tragic passing of kelly catlin now kelly catlin was an incredibly talented woman and her olympic silver medal and three world titles only told a small part of what she had to offer this world a computational and mathematical engineering graduate from Stanford, fluent in Chinese, and a wonderful soul who was a fierce competitor of mine, but also a great friend to so many and a beloved daughter. Kelly tragically took her own life two months after a training accident in USA with USA Cycling in 2019. Kelly's father opened up about his devastating loss in a wonderful interview with our colleagues over at Valley News during last summer's Olympics. And he said that he felt if just one person had recognised that Kelly had had post-concussion syndrome, it could have made all the difference. This is one of the most devastating examples of why we so desperately need an educational programme within cycling and a culture change within the sport. Hi, my name is Tom Fallon. I'm a cycling performance coach working within Cycling Ireland and I'm also a physiotherapist working within the musculoskeletal speciality um, in both public and private settings in, in the UK. So Tom, as a former international cyclist, now a physiotherapist and also a coach working with Cycling Ireland, tell me about the programme that you've introduced for concussion education um, at Cycling Ireland and, and why you've done it as well. Yeah, so we have a comprehensive package of support. It's a, it's a multidisciplinary package of support with Sport Ireland um, and Cycling Ireland. And part of that was a concussion education piece, which is delivered by some Sport Ireland physiotherapists to give these under-19 riders education around kind of, I suppose, concussion as a condition, how multifaceted it is and the symptomology of it, how vast and varied it is. And for the for the athletes, in a, in the kind of fundamental years to gain an understanding of of what it is and how to how to pick it up and how to acknowledge it as a as a as a condition was this something that happened during your time as a as a cyclist that, that planted the seed for you to start this program as despite it being you know vastly needed it's very rare to hear about preventative educational programs in cycling yeah, I suppose so. As as a rider myself, I've I've definitely crashed a few times, and I had a bad accident in in France 
one year and I was it was early on the season I was chasing kind of mid-season goals and this crash was in March and already had a, a knee injury setback earlier on that year and I was hospitalised for two days and the only reason I was kept in hospital at the time I was told was because of a, a potential cervical fracture so an, a, a fracture in my neck and that when that was ruled out I was I was let home and I, I just went back to Belgium then with the team and I was I was staying in the house and I wasn't able to stand up without kind of getting really dizzy or, or actually I was physically getting sick and I was fainting as well and at no point I suppose in the acute sense or after that did anybody mention concussion to me mm. it was it was never mentioned and I think through time and I suppose through education I started to gain a greater perspective as to the risk around what concussion was and, and around the risks of it and then the sheer lack of education and awareness that I suppose us riders who who were at the time competing at what would have been the top tier that we didn't it wasn't even mentioned um but clearly it was it was an issue and I think that for me was was one thing that that's kind of kick-started it personally and then Academically, then I, I suppose I, I started to kind of see that there was nothing within cycling. You know, up to recently, the UCI even had only, you know, a, a loose kind of term of guidance within within their rules. And I think it was the Harrogate statement was only recently re- produced, um, which is the first consensus statement that the that the world body for cycling is actually, you know, released to acknowledge concussion as a condition and how and how to identify it and potentially screen for it in a race scenario so you know with that i suppose education i thought was that education is definitely shortcome um because if the if the world body isn't able to acknowledge it how, we can't assume that everybody's going to know about it and um, so that's kind of one of the things personally that that kind of drove it for me to say look this is an important piece that we need to include for junior athletes and I think Sport Ireland were, were fortunate enough that they, they really do listen and work with us well and they would they agree completely that from working across other sports they can see the void there um, so that's I think we've, we've gained traction in that regard but I think there's still a lot of work to do um, in it for sure you know like from a federation sense there's nothing in uh, you know, in the wider federation to educate stakeholders, those being like the coaches, the commissaires, the you know, people who are holding leisure licenses, your your week to week racers. There's nothing kind of out there in the federation to to educate them mm. um, on on the on the federation's website. And I think interestingly enough, actually, uh, there was a scope and review done, um, I think by by Neil Heron and, and somebody else in from Queen's University in Belfast and and they looked around kind of the concussion guidelines in in UK governing bodies um, you know across multi sports and I think cycling was one that there was nothing on the on the national governing bodies websites around concussion um, so again there, there, there's voids that we we've identified that are definitely there to fill yeah, fascinating. I mean, so many things that you mentioned there that I'd like to pick up on. And you mentioned the the Harrogate statement um, yeah. that was done in, you know, that was pre- presented to the UCI in uh, at the Harrogate World Championships in 2019, if I'm, if I'm right in saying that. 
And uh, it's interesting because as part of that guidance, there's a protocol for return to play about um, a seven day return to play. Uh, Of course, depending on whether or not the athlete has symptoms, if they have symptoms, then that is delayed further. Um, But even just this last week, there's been a high profile case. um, Well, or there's been a high profile crash. um, And to anybody kind of looking into it, you know, of a, of a professional female professional cyclist who's going to be one of the top contenders at the Tour de France, having an accident with the exact same symptoms that you m- mentioned, which for anybody who's in the know screams concussion, um, and then returning to racing two days later, uh, which, you know, is completely ignorant of the protocol. Um, and, and the most alarming thing is really that that rider's welfare. And so there's there's somewhere in that a big a big void in education with not just the rider because it shouldn't just be the rider's responsibility especially when the rider is the person that has had you know the the brain injury uh, and is not in a fit state to make the decision it should be um also the teams the mechanics the soigneurs who are all educated because really on the ground it's the mechanics and the soigneurs who often are the people who 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 first see the rider and then spend most of the time with the rider so um what's your well First off, what, what's the response that you've had from the riders with this education? Um, and also, um, are you and have you thought about educating family members uh, further, you know, a wider, wider members of staff in, in Cycling Ireland? And um, yeah, about, about the immediate care needed, you know, immediately after um, a crash that, that could have a possible concussion. Yeah, I suppose there's a, there's a few points that you've mentioned there. Um, that'll probably that'll lead me into that is I myself done some research around kind of quantifying the, the knowledge and the attitudes of competitive UCI cyclists um, just just last year to see, to gain understanding as to, you know, how much do these cyclists know around concussion, its symptomology, its presentation, and then also what their attitudes were. Um, and the, the research piece I done was very much so controlled to the competitive athletes, but there is um, other research done that that looks at all stakeholders from mechanics to coaches. But what I what what, the, what I was what I found was that actually younger athletes have higher levels of, of knowledge around concussion and symptomology than their older counterparts. But from an attitude sense, younger athletes were more willing to take risk. And this is something that I suppose reinforced the importance of the educational pieces for me, but also I suppose the when we're when we have this open discussion at the end of our of our educational piece, we kind of reinforce the cultural change that needs to happen. Because I think in within cycling there is a there is a culture of of a hard man culture and this you know we can you can push through it you're almost applauded for crossing the line with with blood in your knees or whatever um but i think with a concussion side of things it's you know you can have a delayed presentation you know your symptoms mightn't show up for 24 hours and i think we need to we need to kind of try to eliminate this hard man culture and one thing that was what was noticed within this research was in, when examining the attitudes when you look there was two sections to it and one was that what the athlete felt and what they felt most athletes would feel and there was a significant difference between what the athlete felt themselves which would from a from a safer attitude point of view and what they felt most athletes would feel and it's very hard not to kind of you know say that that the cultural 
context in which that the individual behaviours arise from are definitely, definitely influencing that um, athlete's decision to get back on the bike or to, mm. you know, to start the next day. And I think, yeah, so that that's one thing. But from from an educational piece, from a wider um, governing body point of view, being honest, yeah, we have I have tried, um, and th- I think this is something that um, we've had. You know, I myself have had just early discussions with with Sport Ireland on, and I think Sport Ireland to see exactly the the need for the void, but but we do, we're lacking track. Cycling Ireland actually don't give us aren't you know coming on board with with this educational piece. Whether it is that they don't you know understand completely um, why it's needed, or you know it's it, there's we're not we're not kind of managing to get there yet. But I think we've definitely had the, the argument that it's needed. Um, so for sure, that's something that we've already we've already started discussing. But it's 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 not really taking off, and I think having these kind of, kind of chats with with yourselves and, and kind of professional cyclists speaking of of their own experiences that's very much so a top-down way of of mm-hmm. leading and change starting to change the culture within the professional peloton and i i actually read a uh, an article by eddie dunbar who, who recently won the tour of hungary uh, I would have raced nationally with Eddie. We know when we were juniors under twenty threes. Um, he now rides for Ineos, and he himself he suffered a concussion. I think it was in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. And in the in the article, he just I think it was two days ago went out in the Irish Independent. He was saying how you know he almost felt soft because the injury was in his head, um, and he speaks of kind of the dark the dark kind of downs that he had as a result of that, and I think. If we can't, if we don't educate and acknowledge, you know, this to be an injury and the management of it to be a lot more than one or two days, you know, that we need to be able to say, right, look, this this can last for for two three months. There's post concussion syndromes, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a which is a branch of, of various different symptoms that you know that can linger on, and as high performing athletes. A lot of high-performing athletes are actually high-performing individuals. High-performing individuals, they don't look for excuses. Um, but they also look within themselves for the source of the problem. And with that, then, you know, I suppose, opens a, of a can of worms of, of, them, of breaking themselves down internally over time if they can't find why they've lost the top 5% of their, their, their performing ability. Or, you know, they, they, you're breaking yourself down and over time, you know, I suppose, unfortunately, that has potentially a detrimental consequence um, in in some cases. And I think from cycling, we have seen that unfortunately um, at the very top level. Um, and yeah, so I think where we yeah, go. Yeah, I mean, is... I assume you're referring to the the tragic death of Kelly Catlin over in the US, and um, and I'm sure there have been other you know other terrible instances of how concussion can you know affect you. At, you know, at the very worst degree, and and from my point of view, having experienced it as well, and and having seen it in in other athletes that I've been working with who have been in denial about it because perhaps they didn't have the education that being a little bit tired or being a bit tired and wanting to sleep in the day was actually a still a symptom of concussion, and that not quite feeling right was a symptom of concussion, and that you know sadness and mood disorder that isn't normal for you is a symptom of concussion and these are all kind of things that can really go unnoticed but they are all symptoms of concussion and symptoms that there is an underlying problem that 
you know, not only is there that can be treated as well, which is is such a big factor. And in my experience, there almost there almost seems to be kind of this linear relationship between um, athlete age or athlete increasing age and decreasing regard for concussion care. Um, and I do hope that as we educate riders coming through, in, you know, with with you know. Um, programs like yours where you're taking the initiative to do it yourself and you know hopefully just by shouting about the experience that I've had I can make people aware and uh, and I have noticed you know the response that I've had from the peloton that I know people will be more aware of of what can happen and the severity of what can happen just from following um you know following my journey but but with all of that I hope that my my real hope is that that teams riders families everybody will will see and will understand that this short term you know delay in training is associated and there is clear evidence with not just the delay in training but delay with screens um actually taking the care to recover properly from the concussion in the first 48 hours and then week means that there's a much faster period to get back to the top level and you're not going to be missing that you know, missing that top few percent or having, you know, very serious mood disorders or, you know, so many other disorders that I've discovered that come with it, hormonal disorders, um, fatigue, you know, autonomic nervous system disorders, just, just about everything that you can think of in terms of your bodily function can be affected by concussion. And yeah, that's quite absolutely. shocking. <laughs> yeah. Once we, once, once the teams, the coach and the, and the kind of wider coaching group and stakeholders are actually of, of, understanding that the performance implication and the performance like the, uh, the impl- or I suppose the, the reduction in performance as a result of, of mismanaging this in the short term and the loss of number will, of days of that athlete riding you know the, the number of days that that athlete will be out will be reduced as well if you manage it exactly properly. And, the, and the outcome of, of what you know if we manage it correctly in the short term they're going to return to the sport safer in the long in the medium term and they're going to be performing better in the medium to longer term as well and i suppose it's rider welfare is prioritized and i think unless and unless we kind of i suppose start to start to continue to educate and definitely start to educate with a with a cultural um translation emphasis and start to address the cultural you know disparity i suppose in a professional cycling world um education alone isn't going to just cut it and i think it's a start and once like riders like yourself and and as for the pro peloton are starting to to acknowledge it as a condition and and speak about it it's going to gain traction and that top down um that top down approach will hopefully lead cultural change and and more of a cultural acceptance i suppose um and and then that's that's better for the riders yeah and and like you said before as well you know it's not just professional cycling when you when you look at the actual you know the hard numbers the number of concussions in professional cycling compared to the general population are a tiny number but having that awareness and knowledge within professional sport will then filter down to like you say information on the governing bodies websites um just more more easily and readily accessible information for everybody to access but here's here's the million dollar question then. What is the next step that the sport needs to take in order to further the progression of concussion care and reduce the chance of post concussion symptom syndrome, which is the the long the longer term syndrome, uh, reduce post concussion syndrome prevention? Uh, I think I think that from a world body point of view, they they probably need to develop an educational module 
um, that that you know acknowledges concussion as a condition and acknowledges I suppose the cultural the cultural um, context in which that the the behaviours of individuals within cycling have and educates people on the vast symptomology of the condition and that you know we know that the screening for it isn't as simple as when you stand up if you're presenting with x y and z that yeah. okay yeah you're, you're concussed you know the screening is a lot more vast from that and symptoms can present delayed delayed um delayed presentation etc and it's i think that's where that's where we need to go well it sounds like tom fallon's doing some really really uh important work there but it does show how far cycling still has to go um cycling is not at the forefront um when it comes to sort of care post concussion um sports that we can learn from though I, I think rugby is a sport that is way way ahead of cycling yeah absolutely uh, rugby has a lot more money than cycling as well and and i think that's why we kind of see the technologies come in in, in rugby and and football but you know football is wildly behind there are so many concussion injuries caused from heading the ball and you know collisions when when going to to get a ball or going to to make a pass um but yeah rugby is actually kind of getting there um and there's this amazing amazing new technology neuroflex that's being trialed um and well actually unfortunately i didn't get down i didn't i wasn't able to speak to to neuroflex in person but i sent some questions over to dr david stevens who is the the medical lead over at neuroflex and he had some fascinating things to tell me about how neuroflex worked and how we could implement neuroflex within cycling uh, hi, I'm, I'm David. Uh, I'm the head of the medical and research for, for Neuroflex, uh, particularly within the Asia-Pacific region. So the Neuroflex is a, is a platform which, uh, which performs what we call vestibular ocular motor screening assessments. Now, or, you know, what we call VOMS, just for, for short. Now, these assessments themselves aren't actually new. They've been researched you know, for well over 50 years now. However... Prior to the advent of essentially VR and, and immersive technology, you needed special rooms to do these tests in. Uh, so the Neuroflex, uh, it's, we put the VR goggles on and we can measure with a high level of accuracy, uh, for example, your ability to track uh, a target moving around a screen, what we call smooth pursuits. Uh, we can measure your vestibular ocular reflex. So that's how well your head and eyes can move together and compensate for each other. Uh, your saccades and anti-saccades, so how well you and how quickly your eyes react to a change in stimuli. And then uh, what we call nystagmus. So that's essentially your ability for your eyes to do different mo movements such as you know, smooth pursuits and saccades or in the case of a spontaneous nystagmus, it's how well your vestibular organs can actually control your eyes in the absence of any actual stimuli that's there. When a user puts the VR goggles on, they're completely immersed in the environment. Uh, now for the case of the, the vestibular ocular motor screening assessments, uh, you know, it's, it's, it ensures that you can focus specifically on the stimuli that you know, we want you to track, for example. Um, but, you know, with the rehabilitation exercises that also come with the Neuroflex, you know, we can create these real-world immersive environments that allows you to train up and to rehabilitate 
any areas that, we, that we've identified as sort of, I guess, being impaired or certainly not at, at optimal levels. Um, and so look, you know, from a technological aspect, the, the VR goggles we use have very accurate eye tracking capabilities. Uh, so we can, you know, track a, a movement of an eye down to sort of 0.1 of a degree, or we can certainly, you know, track the reaction time of, of the eye movement to sort of within 100 milliseconds. Um, as well, the VR goggles have a internal gyroscope and we can then also detect uh, the head movements as well. And that allows us to then undertake sort of calculations, for example, the vestibulocular reflex or certainly at least head contribution to, to some of the, the tests that we, that we run. Can you explain how the tests provided by Neuroflex differ from those that you might see in a traditional concussion protocol? Sure. I mean, the, the biggest difference, the most obvious difference, is that ours is uh, entirely objective. Um, current sort of bordering on mandated concussion tests, such as the sports concussion assessment tool, it's... Uh, it's predominantly symptom-driven and, and, and uses the symptoms of, of the player um, to, to derive essentially a, a diagnosis. And so that's obviously very, uh, very subjective. Uh, some of, some of the, the, the concussion assessment tools do have crude neurocognitive tests like, you know, memory recall, like word recall, or, uh, you know, months of the year backwards, for example, um, but look, you know, we, we unfortunately know that players do have and, and do sort of memorise these tests. Unfortunately, well, they are freely available online. So, um, and we, we do have issues of, of people trying to, I guess, skirt the system a bit and try to overcome any of these concussion assessment, um, sorry, concussion assessments. And so the Neuroflex, with its objective data, it, uh, it just, it makes it, and because it's reflexive as well, in measuring these reflexes, it's almost impossible to try and, I, I guess, skirt the system. You can't tank it. Uh, so it gives a very true representation of the, of the neurophysiological performance of a person. And so it does allow for this far more almost precise, I guess, indication of brain health. In my personal opinion, and indeed, you know, opinions shared by numerous other sort of specialists involved with, with sort of concussion and, and TBIs is that there's actually the, the return to play, I guess, assessments themselves are almost non-existent. I mean, many of these concussion assessment tools, they, they're not particularly effective sort of 72 hours onwards. Uh, and so many sports have just a very arbitrary, you know, time off essentially uh, and and interestingly within sports uh it can differ so uh you know rugby rugby union in australia uh you have to spend 12 days off if you're over 18 you have to spend 12 days off after symptoms but i know in uh in the uk having just sort of spoken to people who work over in the uk in the, in the rugby union world over there that it's only six days um and you know there there is a concern that because it really is just down to the symptoms of the player, um, you know, you really you have to you have to depend on the, on the player themselves being honest. And look, some players are, in my experience, some players are very honest with their symptoms. Others aren't. You get you know the young eighteen year old who's about to break into the first team. They're going to do anything they can to make the field. 
Um, and so, you know, the, the objective data from the Neuroflex just means that we, we just avoid that. We, we have these numbers, uh, and the old expression, numbers don't lie, particularly if they're from you know, measuring reflexes. And so it, it just gives that precision for, for the recovery and how the play is, is tracking. And so it means that you, you, when you give the decision to go back on the field, you are confident that they are sort of healthy and ready to go back on the field. I'd like to think in my experiences within sport, uh, players are starting to become aware of concussions and aware of the dangers of trying to hide it. Uh, but, you know, look, there's still a long, way, a long way to go in terms of proper education of, of athletes with concussion, that's for sure. Uh, look, I just, you know, to extend on that, I also think that, you know, the, the coaching staff, they're also starting to become acutely aware of of the importance of, of of essentially identifying and managing a concussion, you know, going to the days of, I want my player back in the field as soon as possible. Um, you know, they, they are aware that you've got to you've got to treat this like any other injury in sport. Look, the you know the Neuroflex can and does identify impairments within the vestibular ocular system. Um, some of the uh, some of the concussion assessment tools do a very crude and rudimentary assessment where you sort of follow the follow follow my finger with your eyes type uh, testing, but I mean we can give sort of precise numbers. Um, we do have the ability to well we have we have rehab exercises. So if I identified a, an area that's impaired, for example, if a a person's eyes are what we call divergent, so they're sort of outward looking from each other, which is common after a concussion and TBI. Yeah, you know, we do have those training exercises to help improve that. I think a technology like Neuroflex has the potential to transform concussion care and education and thereby transform the culture within sports. Cycling desperately needs a culture shift with concussion management and a thorough education program to athletes, families and team personnel to make them aware not only of the huge and dangerous risks, but also of the enormous benefits and reduced duration needed for return to play with appropriate management. The challenge with cycling is that it's a sport that cannot be paused. If you stop, the race moves on without you. Is there a potential to use Neuroflex roadside as a concussion screening tool? And realistically, how long would it take? Um, look, short answer, yes. Uh, with the Neuroflex, yeah, we, we have sort of eight tests. However, you can actually you know, only select to do only a couple of the tests. And certainly that's what uh, World Rugby has been doing. Uh, and so, you know, for the sort of acute screening within world rugby, it takes two minutes to do them. Uh, and so I, I personally believe that, yes, you can actually, you know, do use the Neuroflex as sort of a roadside uh, concussion assessment. Uh, as an aside, actually, interestingly enough, we, we are undertaking research to, to see whether or not the, the Neuroflex can actually be used as a roadside sleepiness tool. Uh, and we have shown that after... 24 hours of sleep deprivation, there does appear to be, you know, impairments. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting that that was sort of a, a similar question was asked, but sort of for two different uses. But yeah, no, I, I definitely think it can be a sort of a, a quick roadside concussion assessment. I mean, even within cycling, the speeds that they're getting up to, the, the risk of a head injury is enormous. I mean, you'd almost guarantee they've got a head injury. And so, 
it almost comes back to this education, just ensuring that the athletes are aware of, of, of the, the very high risk of long-term, I guess, bordering on disability that can occur from a unidentified or, and or a poorly managed head knock or a concussion. And so I think it's, you need a bit of a two-pronged approach with that one. You need to ensure that... Uh, that they understand that the, the, the cyclists understand the importance of, of undertaking these measures, but at the same time, I we I am aware that you sort of need a, a quick and and but accurate assessment for it. And finally, how do you see Neuroflex fitting in to cycling? Yeah, in terms of how how you know technology like Neuroflex can can fit into cycling, I mean, I think it's like with with sort of any sport that's at a high risk of of experiencing a a concussion or a head knock is, you know, ideally we take sort of baseline measures. So we, we know sort of what the brain is, you know, in a, I guess a healthy state. And then, you know, we can then, after a, a suspected injury has occurred or indeed with cycling after a crash, we can then monitor the cyclist uh, to ensure that not only that, you know, whether or not there's been any head injury and then if there has been we can then sort of monitor the the progress to recovery because we know that a a second sort of concussion a second head knock is is far worse in terms of outcomes in terms of symptomology and even disability and indeed getting back again to sort of the speeds that some of these cyclists attain you know if they have a second crash and there was an underlying head injury that just wasn't properly managed, then the, the, there could be some quite catastrophic outcomes in terms of their sort of, you know, their brain health. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks as ever to Science in Sport for the fantastic support they give us here at The Cycling Podcast. They've just supported us through another Grand Tour. I should really have checked how many Grand Tours that is. Um, But they'll be with us for the Tour de France and the Vuelta a España over the coming months as well. Let me bend over. Let me see how many gels I've got in my science and sport box here. Hang on. I've only got about four left. Been doing some hefty work on the turbo recently. So I need to re-up my science in sport goodies and if you do too then uh, you can get 25% off thanks to the cycling podcast just go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25 that's SISCP25 well Lizzie you've kind of become um between you and Ian Boswell you're sort of the kind of concussion advocates um within or in Ian's case sort of outside um of the peloton you've got some pretty interesting thoughts on what the sport needs to do you've almost got like a you've almost written the policy for them Liz. I feel like so I've got let, yeah let yeah the business plan ready to go to be honest and <laughs> and I do think the the three the three factors that we've got within this podcast are exactly what the sport needs education identification and treatment and I think touching on the treatment side you know you know what I learned from my post-concussion syndrome last year was that concussion concussion is is not one thing it's a huge spectrum of a number of disorders as I kind of touched on with my interview with Tom that that, that it affects everything you know it affects everything 
every bodily system that you could think of, it affects. And so um, what we can do with neuroflex re retraining the vestibular and ocular motor system is a very critically important part of that. But we also need um, understanding that the autonomic nervous system has had a big knock. We need to retrain that, um, calm that down. You can do that with meditation, cold water therapy, lots of things like that. Um, and, um, you know, also that we just critically look, need to look out for these riders and care for these riders and provide this supportive environment. But, um, yeah, really, really, you know, these are the three main things we need. And without this education, you can't create the culture shift without kind of a device like HIT, which could so, so simply be integrated into helmets with, you know, if you got the helmet helmet manufacturers and industry on board with it. And we already have these devices underneath the rider's saddles that are tracking everything. We've seen in the Giro, we've got the Whoop data live streamed, the Power data live streamed. You can access that straight away on the TV. You don't even need to put the phone to the helmet and read it because you can you can see that already. And you can you should have the team doctor in the car who should be properly educated about concussion because most notably most team doctors are not. Well, maybe that's not fair. Many team doctors are not. My team doctor is brilliantly and actually um, contributed to the Harrogate, Harrogate consensus agreement in 2019. Um, and, and, you know, you know, you've already got that recognize, recognition device in place to say, okay, this, this rider's had this hit, this impact, let's take them out and let's do the more detailed um, Neuroflex assessment on them. And, you know, perhaps if you use a, a device like HIT to identify that the rider needs a more thorough assessment, you could say a rider who is deigned to need a more thorough concussion assessment does not have to adhere to the time limits of that stage. So in a one day race, it kind of doesn't matter. If something like this happens, your chances out the window. But in a stage race, you know, if you start with eight riders or six riders in the women's peloton, losing one can have a huge impact on on the race, on the team. So if your rider is fine, you don't want to take them out. So so this kind of system where you have this, yeah, extra time basically for a rider who who could be at risk mitigates mitigates that risk of losing a rider that's actually fine, but also protects the rider. And I really think that it, it might be something that, that cycling would struggle to accept, saying, oh, but, you know, we don't have an OTL for for riders that are under this medical protocol, but it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. You know, why should a, a rider have to lose out because they are checking that they're not going to have long-term health problems, you know? Mm -hmm. We have to protect mm -hmm. these riders because, yeah, we, we so often don't see these riders because they so often don't recover because they don't have the knowledge of how to recover and so they just disappear. And so you think, mm -hmm. well, maybe there's not that many people that have concussion. But it's more than just about professional sport. If there's anything that I've learned from my journey, it's the, God, hundreds of people that have reached out to me about their experiences with concussion from, you know, you know, what might seem like minor falls or just stupid accidents. I mean, all accidents are stupid. And, and they've ended up with horrendous, long-lasting symptoms that have changed their lives and affected everything. And they're struggling to, to you know, live day to day years mm. afterwards. Well, I don't think it's unique to cycling, this kind of idea that we just um, carry on and, and get back on with it. And I do think, you know, we talk about how sport can make a difference in society and sport is a leader. You know, when sport starts taking concussion more and more seriously, um, then other industries will follow, won't they? You know, if I have a concussion and I can't go and do my job, you know, my, my employer will have a greater understanding of it if sport 
is demonstrating that. And, you know, if we carry on the way we're going at the moment, you know, we could easily have another situ- another Kelly Caitlin, you know, we could have mm. another, another tragedy like that, you know. I mean, you, you, Lizzie, you've spoken about it. I mean, you, you know, I, I don't know whether you want me to ask you about this, but, you know, you've said to me that you were kind of, you were so limit. low that you yeah. were very, you were on the limit. Yeah. You were on the limit. Yeah, I was. I was. And I, I, I spoke about this a bit in, in the podcast. I think we'll link to this in, in, in the description, the, the podcast that I did when I initially kind of came back after a four month break. Um, and it was the first time that I was able to kind of have a longer conversation again without feeling so sick. But actually, you know, it was it was hugely draining and, and I did have to kind of take a few days to recover from that conversation. But I did speak about it a bit back then. But the the lows that you have are the lowest the lowest lows that you can possibly have because you have no reserves left you have no brain energy left you can't think straight you can't process anything straight and the dark the dark dark days that i experienced then you you perhaps don't even realize how close you are to 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 something mm-hmm. catastrophic um and I was so fortunate to have, you know, my husband Gabriel so close to me, like always there. I didn't didn't leave my side at all for months. But a lot of people don't have that, you know. A lot of people in the general population don't do that, but particularly in the professional peloton, don't do that. If you come across the globe from Australia or America, um, you're living on your own in Girona or wherever, and you don't know how to access these services, or you've got a team doctor that's telling you that it doesn't exist. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of riders who've who've had this and who've just been desperate because their team doctors are telling them that they're fine and um, they're not fine. I, I actually was hoping to speak with Eddie Dunbar mm. for this for this episode, who um, who I spoke about with Tom Fallon, and um, go and have a look at the, the article um, in the, the Irish Independent that... Uh, that that uh, Eddie Eddie um, was interviewed in because it's a really insightful article and I didn't know about Eddie Dunbar's concussion. But yeah, the, the, the point is that he, you know, he was having all of these symptoms and all of these troubles and, you know, all of these mood disorders and didn't understand. And, and, and fortunately, we didn't have a, a, a tragic catastrophe with him, but it only takes the tiniest thing to tip somebody over the edge. And yeah. we really have to be so mindful, so careful. And we have a duty of care and we have a responsibility. And at at the current time, we are seeing some severely negligent practices within professional cycling. Well, I do you know it's stuff that I wish I knew. A friend of mine, uh, well, a former coach, really. And he's actually, um, he's actually the man behind sort of one of the, one of the, most well, well, currently one of the most successful uh, sort of domestic women's uh, teams, and I, I won't I won't name him because I, I don't know if he's comfortable with it. But he suffered a concussion when I was sort of riding with him, and then sort of dropped out of cycling for a bit, of, just sort of dropped out of life mm. for a little bit. You know, post concussion syndrome, um, depression, and that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, we just kind of oh, you know, get back on your bike, mate, come out with us, and all this sort of stuff. And actually, you know what? I just looking back on it, and this is only like a handful of years ago and I just you know I was totally insensitive to it because because you weren't aware you You weren't aware I didn't know education no No, exactly no exactly and yeah uh, hopefully hopefully by raising this issue again and again and I'm going to keep beating this drum because it is just so needed within within the world of cycling and 
things have changed a lot, I feel, even since I, you know, Ian and, and I have been talking about it a lot um, and we're going to continue to do so. And what strikes me about all these conversations is that these people who are experts in the field, in their fields that we've been talking to, but some who maybe have less experience with cycling, when they look at the nature of these crashes in cycling, they're absolutely shocked to see the speed mm. and the impacts. And when we compare that to the current protocols that have been accepted by the UCI and, and, and you know, please be aware that it was very difficult to get the UCI to even accept the current recommendations, which, you know, are still not stringent enough. Um, and also by the level of care that's being implemented by the teams, there's a huge disparity and it's clear that we need a culture shift. And, you know, I want to use this podcast to lobby all of the stakeholders to please, please, please do the right thing. We have the resources available. We have the recognition devices. We have um, all of all of the information on how to treat this, but everybody has to be educated. And if the doctor in the team doesn't know about concussion, don't take their word for it. They're just a person. They're just a normal person. Just because they're called doctor doesn't mean that they know everything in the world. If they're not educated on concussion, they're not going to give the correct advice. Go out there, educate yourself. It's not that hard. The information is out there. And the technological devices that are going to help us recognize and treat um, these incidents they are there. So please, please utilize them. Please change. We need to learn from this tragic loss of Kelly. And please do something about it because we can't afford to lose any more lives or have any more lives ruined in something which is so preventable. Lizzie, I love it that you do this stuff. I, um, I, th I love it that you found your voice on this stuff and I, and I can see that you're helping to change the sport and you're you're helping other people I mean I know, I know you get a lot of messages particularly through Instagram so that's great um before I let you go I just want to say I want to say thank you to someone else I want to say thank you to Stacey Schneider before we before we leave oh, this week yes. um because I've been throughout this podcast I've been holding one of the one of Stacey's new new mugs uh in tribute to to Richard um the spirit of the buffalo. Um, I know. I, th I, th I think. I do believe that a friend of the podcast um, bought us all mugs. Um, so thank you to Stacey and thank you to whoever that mystery friend is. And I hope one wings its way to you soon, Lizzie. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing. So, so, but you know, thank you and thank you, Lizzie, for for for, for all you do on on this subject. I actually find it fascinating. And I, I, you know, and I and again, like you know, I was talking about my a friend of mine who. You know, I probably didn't understand it. Again, you know, I, I spoke to you quite a bit about it, and mm. you know, I, you know, I think I was quite sensitive. But again, I, I still didn't really know, you know, how deeply affected you were by mm. it. So, um, you know, again, I'm I'm learning every, you know, as we go along. So, um, yeah, you're doing some vital stuff there, Lizzie. What's uh, next for you? Hopefully, a bit of recovery, and then. Yeah, it's just time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think just quickly going back to what you were saying, Tom. You know, if you do know somebody who who has had this. Just please just keep checking in on them. Um, yeah. You know, don't don't send them texts. Give them a ring. No. Send them voice yeah. messages because we don't want them to be looking at their phone in the immediate aftermath of a concussion. Um, but but do just keep checking in. And especially, I mean, this just goes for anything in any walk of life. If you have a friend who, who goes quiet, please just check in because you never know how close, how close somebody is to the edge um, and what the consequences should be. But yes, for me, um, I am. I'm still <laughs> still strictly on resting duty. Um, I will be on resting duty for a while. Um, you know, I am very much aware that 
you know, once I had the MRI scan that showed that I wasn't kind of as better, you know, as better as I thought I was or wanted to be, that uh, that meant the Tour de France out of the window. And it's a, it's just a, it's a very difficult pill to swallow. But actually, my experiences last year have really helped me cope with it. Yeah. And um, I know that there's nothing I can do. I know that there's nothing I've done wrong. Um, it was a, you know, um, a virus that I couldn't stop getting and a side effect that's, you know, nothing to do with the way that I have I have reacted and responded to that. And um, it's just time. And once that time has passed, I will I will come back <laughs> and hopefully there's no other crazy things that can go wrong well we just need to sort that cat hair out don't we that's the that's the next thing once we tackled that well, i've definitely had a bit of cat hair in my eye throughout this episode uh, it's been, uh <laughs> yeah it's, it's an emotional thing to talk about but it's it's a really important thing so thank you for sticking with us through the episode and um yeah please go and please go and share this with everybody that you know and um just get the message out there because it desperately needs to be shared and i dare say this won't be the last time we do an episode <laughs> on the subject and I'm, I'm keen to do more always Lizzie listen, I'll let you go um, hopefully next month we can talk about your brand new bike race that we're going to start well it was my idea but we're definitely going to start it can't talk about it this we month can't. next month no we can't next talk about month. it now but we have a very exciting oh. we have a very exciting new race coming up oh so they're going to be the best circuit race in the world can't wait to talk about that um, right Lizzie listen I'll let you go and um, good luck and um yeah just keep doing what you're doing it's great (laughs) thanks tom see you soon and thanks everyone for listening the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by richard moore daniel freeb and lionel burney